Amen. Amen. This morning, our, uh, as we started a couple weeks ago, uh, if you were here, you remember, uh, we started Crossing Kids, something we've been excited about getting going, uh, where we uh, take our three-year-olds through kindergarten uh, into the back, and we teach them at an age-appropriate level about Jesus and the gospel. And um, we want to be very intentional about that. It's not babysitting. It's not filling them up with juice and crackers and just occupying them. We, we want to take time to uh, teach them the gospel on their age level while we're in here learning um, about Jesus um, through a sermon and teaching. And before we do that, we, we like to have them come down to the front to pray over them. And uh, not to do some hokey object lesson, but to just ask the Spirit of God to work in their hearts through the teachers and, um, and do great things in them as they grow. We're not taking the place of you as parents. Like, we're not the primary disciple makers of your kids. You are. We are supplementing what you're doing at home. And so um, you're, you should have a conversation today like this. What did you hear? What did you learn? And how can Jesus help us to obey it? Right? And so let's take a moment and pray over these guys and then let them go in the back and, and learn about the Bible and how it teaches us about Jesus. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for kids. They are a gift of your grace to all people. And we rejoice in that. And uh, we pray that as we take time to be intentional with, with uh, the kids of the Crossing Church this morning, that, that Father, you would take your word as it's presented and you would uh, plant the seed of your word in their hearts in ways they don't even understand yet, but in ways that will bear fruit as we go forward. Help our parents to be intentional as they go home and talk about what they learned, about helping them to see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel and what they, they heard. And Father, just bless our teachers as they're back there, uh, not just with these kids, but in the nursery. That God, this time would be a time of intentionality and purpose. And that, Father, you would get much glory and honor. And God, help us as we learn from your word. Help us to learn about Jesus and do work in our heart and our life this morning that only you can do so that we can be your people and be who you've called and created us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys go have fun. Of course, we're family, so parents don't have to send their kids to the back. If you prefer to have your kids with you, that's cool. We're fine with that. If they make noise and shuffle around and eat Cheerios, that's, that's cool with us. Uh, we also are being intentional in the nursery. Uh, first Sunday we get, get to do that. That's cool. Uh, this is not just babysitting back there. Uh, I talked to Jennifer last night. Uh, not my Jennifer, the other Jennifer. About with uh, that, that nine-month-old that's in there, you're praying over that kid. You're singing gospel songs with that child. You're, you're praying for God to work in her heart for her to come to know and love Jesus Christ one day. And so it's, it's really all about being intentional in everything we do and help you as parents disciple your kids. Um, first grade and up, we have uh, sermon worship guides. These are always going to be in the uh, entrance or the foyer or whatever you want to call when you walk in the door. Uh, they'll look something like this, and this is for first grade and up to use to engage mentally during the sermon time. It usually go along with the passage that we're teaching. And again, it's not something that uh, we're just trying to occupy your kids and keep them quiet. Like, we don't really care if your kids make noise. What we care about is for them to be discipled and come to know and love Jesus Christ. And so, again, take that home. Use that as a tool to engage in conversation. What did you learn? What did you hear? There are some questions on there that are specific to our, our service and, and the sermon that we preached. And so um, the activities aren't really as important to us. If you want to use those activities to reward them for, for, for listening or paying attention, then great. Um, we hope to one day be able to create our own sheets that are a little bit more in line with who we are. But... For right now, this will work. And so take it home and have a conversation with your kids. What did you learn? What did you hear? How can Jesus help you to obey it? Begin building that recording in their mind that it's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. It's all about knowing and loving him. And for the rest of you, there will always be or usually will be a sermon guide. There's one out there today. Just a place for you to take notes. Guys, it's never our intention. We don't care if we fill this building up three times on Sunday. It's never our desire for you to come hear a sermon, hear a teaching, and for it to end right there. That's never our desire. That's not what we're after. If we, if we have 500 people come fill this little building up and everything ends as soon as we walk out the door, then we have not accomplished what we're pursuing. Our desire is for you to hear, to believe, to grasp, to be transformed, and then you take that and go disciple somebody with it. Go teach somebody with it. 
Your spouse, your, your kids, people you live with, people you work with, somebody, as you are being poured into by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, right now, you take that and go pour that into somebody else. It does not need to end right here. And so the, the note-taking God is not, hey, this is the greatest sermon you're ever going to hear, you want to remember it. It is, how, what is God speaking to me? What do I see in the Word of God? What is the Spirit of God showing me that I can then go and pour into somebody else? That's the purpose behind it. Uh, as well as there are some questions on there that you can discuss next time you get together in your missional community. Mission communities, by the way, are the, really the life of this church. So... Um, as, as we're gathering on Sundays, we only do that every other week right now because the life of the church happens every day, not, not on Sunday mornings. And so we're intentionally not gathering every Sunday so that our people are reminded that the church is an everyday experience. We are family, we are servants, we are missionaries every day in the city of Monroe. And so if you haven't been to one of our mission communities, we invite you to come, uh, find out where you can plug in and, and begin to share life with this body of believers. It's so much more than a Sunday morning service. And um, those questions are designed to be discussed in those missional community gatherings. Um, so this morning we begin our series in Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 is where we are. If you have your Bibles, it'll also be on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning. And we're going to begin reading and asking God to um, uh, speak to us this morning uh, what He has for us to be transformed by the gospel through Beginning verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the New Testament starts off with historical narrative books that we call the Gospels, and there's four of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have the book of Acts, which is another historical narrative book that is a continuation of the book of Luke. But then the rest of the New Testament are what we call epistles. Essentially, they are letters. Most of those, 13 of those, almost half the New Testament, were written by this guy, the Apostle Paul. And he wrote them to primarily churches, and so you have the, the church in Rome and the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, and the church of Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and then Colossae. Then you had him writing to the church of Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians. And then you had Paul writing to people. So he's writing to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and Titus and Philemon. And then you have the, the rest of the epistles. Hebrews written by, we don't know, ultimately the Holy Spirit, which is all that matters. You have James, you have Peter writing his two epistles, John the Apostle writing his three, First, Second, Third John. Then you have Jude, and then you have John writing his last epistle, the book of Revelation, that he wrote to seven different churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And so Colossians is one of these letters written by a person to a group of believers in a specific location at a specific time and place in, in the context of history. Colossians is a city that by this point in time was a, a city that was on the decline. They had once been more prominent and powerful, but by now... They really were an afterthought. They were local cities that were much more important to local trade and commerce and culture. Colossae was not that city. And you know, if you, if you know the, the, the history of the, the, the New Testament, you know that Paul was very strategic about where he plants churches. Like he goes to major metropolitan cities. So why is there a church even in Colossae to begin with? How did this even happen? Paul, in fact, had never been there. So how did the church get in the city of Colossae? It's because there was a guy doing exactly what, what I just encouraged you to do. He heard the gospel. He took it back into the rhythms of his life and began to share the gospel with people that he knew. It's that simple. This man by the name of Epaphras was sitting in maybe a service similar to this where the gospel was being proclaimed. 
Epaphras heard it, was made alive in Christ Jesus. He goes back to his town of Colossae, begins to share what, what we do. Jesus said we would do this in Acts 1.8. When the Holy Spirit comes on us, we're going to be his witnesses. Epaphras begins to share the gospel with people that he's been life with. Christ begins making people alive. And disciples of Jesus Christ start showing up in Colossae. Which is what, what we desire to happen in the city of Monroe. Like, like we started a church and we hope to make disciples what we really desire and dream is to make disciples because if you make disciples, you always get a church. And that's what happened in Colossae. This man Epaphras began to share the gospel. The book of Acts records Paul's preaching and teaching ministry in the city of Ephesus, which is a, another city in, in modern-day Turkey. Paul was there about two to three years. Part of it was in prison. And his ministry was so effective that in Acts 19.10 it says, This continued, Paul's teaching ministry, continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And Epaphras was one of those residents. And here's the gospel, he goes back to his hometown, and a church is born. Paul, at this time, is in prison. By the time he writes this letter, maybe in Rome, maybe in Ephesus, we don't know, it doesn't really matter, scholars are divided. And Epaphras is having some issues in the church. Like, you may not know this, but that kind of happens in churches, issues come up, Right? And so he's having some issues, and he needs some, some help. In, in the case of Colossae, there were theological issues. Some heresies were beginning to show up in the church. We'll get into more of that later. But he wants Paul's advice. He wants Paul's wisdom. And so he sends word and, uh, to Paul. Paul needs some, some help. And so Paul responds with the letter that we're reading today, the book of Colossians. Paul begins his letter with a standard greeting that all of his letters have. First, he identifies who is writing. He identifies himself, who is with him, in this case, Timothy. When Paul does say something about himself, it's usually something along these lines. I'm, I'm Paul, the apostle. I've been called by God, commissioned by God. I'm apostle of Jesus Christ. Something along those lines that show his role in God's sovereignty over his life. Paul is an apostle, so that's not spiritual gift apostleship that, that different people can have. Think, think like a church planter. But this is the official title, apostle. Like, I am the Apostle Paul. I am one of the men who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. I am one of the men who formed the foundation for the church on which the church is built above Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So it's his official title. And then he identifies Timothy as one of as he does in four other letters. Why, why he does this, we don't know. Timothy's not the only person Paul identifies with him at different times. There's no indication Timothy is a co-author, but t- certainly Timothy is in agreement with what Paul is writing. And then Paul identifies who he's writing to. And in some of his letters, we learn a lot about the people he's writing to from what Paul says about them because he's been there and he knows them. In this case, he hasn't been there. He doesn't know them. He doesn't say much. He calls them saints. He calls them faithful. He calls them brothers, which you could also imply they're sisters, your family. But you're the saints and you're faithful and you're my family. And that's all we really know about them from the Apostle Paul. And then Paul gives us his standard greeting, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace carries with it the the full weight of what it means for God to demonstrate His grace toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the totality of how God treats us, always in grace. Grace through Christ Jesus. And, And then it follows that with peace, which piggybacks an Old Testament term called shalom, which speaks of peace with God, peace with others, well-being in life, blessing in life. And when Paul says grace and peace in his letters, he always says grace and then peace. Because you cannot have peace with God until you have received the grace of God through Christ Jesus. And it's always grace before peace. Paul would say something very similar in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified because of the faith that we've placed in Jesus Christ justified because of the grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. We're justified not of our works, but justified by believing in Jesus and who he's done in his works. That's what justifies us, makes us right in God's eyes. Even the faith, like the faith that we profess in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, is a gift of God. So we can't even take credit for the faith. It's all a gift of God's grace. We're justified by faith, Paul says. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so grace always precedes peace with God. So that's the greeting section. 
Very standard in all of Paul's letters. And in the next section we're going to spend our both of our time is another common part of Paul's letters, the Thanksgiving section. Paul always finds something to be thankful about in this body of believers. No matter how big of a dumpster fire the church may be, like Corinth, Galatia, major problems going on, Paul always finds something to thank God for because of the evidence of the gospel in those people, which you know is a good lesson for us. Sometimes we can be tend to be too harsh, too critical with less mature believers. But because of the gospel, there's always something to thank God for in the life of the people that we know. And then Paul usually follows that up with a section that includes a prayer, how he's praying for them. And Kendrick's going to walk through that in a few weeks. And then that leads to the main purpose of this letter, which we'll spend a lot of time on later. But just, just know this, Paul is writing to this church to combat the beginning of some heretical teaching. What was the heretical teaching? Well, there's a lot to that, but it basically was a teaching that questioned the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There were people who were saying, Jesus is not enough. He might be enough for you to believe in salvation, to go somewhere when you die, but for everyday spiritual experience, Jesus is not enough. You need to do these other things. And I, and I, think, that's, I think that's a common question today. I think that's a common question in the hearts of a lot of people today. Is Jesus enough for every day? Like a lot of people in our culture think that Jesus primarily has to do with what happens when you die, where you go when you die. And part of the reason is for that is because that's how it's primarily been preached in our area for like 100 years. You know, do you, do you know that you know that you know if you die tonight, where are you going to spend eternity? And so people have heard that and heard that and heard that. And so we think that Jesus is only about what happens when we die. And a lot of people are like, yeah, okay, I got that. Now what? What difference does Jesus make in my job? What difference does Jesus make in my marriage? What difference does Jesus make in my parenting, my hobbies, my loves, my desires, my recreation, everything in life? What difference does Jesus make in all of that? And a lot of people today, I think, have this mentality that he, he doesn't really make a difference. Like, once you get heaven squared away, they just kind of do what you want to do. And just do the best you can do and do, do what, whatever comes your way. And, and that's good enough. You don't really have to involve Jesus in everyday life. And the believers at Colossae were being tempted along those lines. They were being tempted by men who were coming along and saying, no, Jesus, he might be sufficient for salvation, but everyday life, you need a little bit of the Old Testament stuff, you need a little bit of this mystical stuff, um, and blend all of that up, and that, that's how you know Jesus and walk with him every day. And, and Paul's resounding answer to them, his resounding answer to us is, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He is not only enough for eternity and eternal life, He is enough for every day. And my prayer for us, our prayer for, for you as we walk through this is to see this, not just to hear it, but to see it, to feel it, to know it, to experience the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is enough. He is enough to infuse and flavor every aspect of your life to find your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction, your greatest hope, your greatest dreams, your greatest everything uh, come to full reality in Jesus Christ. He is enough. He is sufficient. A lot of people in our culture think uh, Jesus only has to do with eternal life. How, what does it make a difference for every day? Well, well, think about this. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3. He says this, and this is eternal life, that you would Make a decision so that when you die, you would know if you're going to heaven or hell. It's not what it says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Eternal life is not something when you die. Eternal life is now. Eternal life is not a place. It's a person. And it starts now when you know God and you know His Son Jesus Christ. And that's our hope and prayer. That's what this church needs to realize. And so we get into this section, verses 3 through 8, where Paul gives thanks for the evidence of the gospel that he sees in them. And so let me challenge you, let me challenge us this morning about the kind of people in the church that we are on the path of becoming. We, when we talk about the crossing church, we've talked a lot about missional communities, 
And we've talked a lot about DNAs where, where men get with men and women with women to grow deeper in their faith with Jesus Christ. We've talked about multiplication, like we want God to raise up leaders that we can train, equip, and send them out. We want to multiply our missional communities. We want to one day multiply our church and plant other churches, and not just in the Monroe area, but all over the world. We talk a lot about big things and strategy and all this kind of stuff. But, but understand this, we can do all of that and completely miss who God wants us to be. Like, y'all realize you can grow a very successful ministry and church in America today that really has little to do with Jesus and the gospel. You can do that. People have done that. People are doing that. And we can do that. But by God's grace, we won't. We won't because we will be the people Jesus has created us to be, a people identified by these marks. And if we become that people identified by these marks, then all the rest of that stuff's going to take care of itself. All the rest of that stuff's going to happen. So I want to focus on three things Paul's thankful for as he says he prays for them. Again, Paul never met these people, yet he's praying for them. Another lesson there, thanking God for the evidence of the gospel in them, for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's grateful to God for the faith that they have in Jesus Christ in verse 4. And you might say, duh, you know, of course they have faith in Jesus Christ, Paul. They've heard the gospel. Not always the case. Hearing the gospel does not guarantee that there will be faith in Jesus Christ, right? Don't don't we see this in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13? Jesus talks about four kinds of soils, four kinds of people that hear the gospel. There's the hard-hearted soil or person, the hard heart that that doesn't even really hear the gospel. Their heart's so hard it just bounces off of them. There's the soil that seems to receive the gospel. There's joy, there's there's a response to the gospel, but it tells us when persecution comes, they, they quit. There's a person that hears the gospel, the soil that, that is received with joy for a while that looks like there's life, but then they get more concerned with the cares and the, the issues of life and, and it chokes out the life that was there momentarily and they, they quit. And there's only one type of soil that produces fruit. There's only one type of soil, the fertile heart, the fertile soil, where the gospel is received with joy and it bears fruit in abundance. So just because someone hears the gospel doesn't mean that they have faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is thankful for the simple fact that these were people who heard the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, what does it mean to have faith in Christ Jesus? Does faith in Christ Jesus simply mean on one day, at one moment in time, you jumped through some religious hoop, you made some religious decision, you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, you got baptized, you filled out a card, you, um, at a VBS or or youth camp or, or church revival service or whatever, you did something to show that you believed in Jesus Christ at that moment in time, and that's all faith in Jesus Christ is. Is that what that is? Is that what Paul's thanking them for? Faith in Christ Jesus? Is is faith simply acknowledging mentally and objective facts about God that are true? So there is a God. I believe the Bible. It is true. There is a man named Jesus. He really lived. Jesus was sinless. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead, proving that everything he did and said was true. And so I acknowledge those are are all true. Check. That's faith. Is, Is that all faith is? Is faith... Simply a religious act you did on one day or affirming truth about Jesus. Now, guys, those things can certainly accompany genuine faith. But there will be more than just that. There will be a belief in the true facts of the gospel. In fact, there in verse uh, 5 or 6, Paul says, uh, verse 5, that the gospel is the word of truth. A synonym for the gospel, word of truth. And so the gospel is built upon objective historical facts that happen. There really is a God. There really was a man who walked on this earth, on the other side of the earth, for 33 or so years. He was truly a man, and he was truly God. And he really lived a sinless life. And at the end of his life, he was crucified like a criminal, not because of a crime he committed, but because he claimed to be the Son of God. And the Jews and the Romans couldn't have that, so they killed him. But it was all part of God's plan. And on the third day, he really came out of that grave and walked around and found his followers and said, I'm alive. And it rocked their world and has been rocking the world for 2,000 years. Because it happened, right? 
That, that, the, you have to believe in those objective facts to believe in the gospel. It's rooted in those facts. But, but faith in Christ Jesus is more than just mentally acknowledging something true. It's more than just something happened on one day years ago. I like Paul David Tripp's definition of faith. Faith is the heart investment that changes how you live life. Faith is the heart investment that changes how you live life. It is a heart investment, so think of the biblical understanding of the heart. It's not your emotions, it's not just your mind, it's the totality of your being. You're investing all that you are in a person, Jesus Christ. You're investing, you're pushing all your chips in on one thing, Jesus Christ. He alone is the way for me to be forgiven, for me to know God, to be reconciled to the God who made me. It's only possible through Jesus Christ, but it is possible through Jesus Christ. And I'm basing all that I am for, for forgiveness, for repentance, for reconciliation to the God who made me on Jesus Christ. And this investment of my heart is so real, it's so much the totality of my being, that it changes. Not just for one day, not just for one season of my life, like it changes everything about me. It changes how I see life, how I live life, decisions, loves, desires. It is that powerful. It is that lasting. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believed... It's not what it says. It doesn't say believed at one point in time. Whosoever believes... In the original language of the New Testament, that is the present tense, ongoing, continual action. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believes, it's present tense. Faith in Christ Jesus changes you. And maybe this morning you may be wondering, do I have that faith? Do I believe in Jesus Christ? And a lot of people will tell you to go back to a point in time where you made a decision. The only problem is the Bible never tells you to do that. The Bible never tells you to go look at your baptismal certificate, to go find your baptismal Bible, or go find the video of you being baptized. It never tells that assurance and salvation comes from that. The Bible says, examine your heart now. What do you love? What do you desire today? Who do you love? And a, a genuine person who has faith in Christ Jesus will more and more be characterized by a love and desire for Jesus Christ. That's it. It's that simple. So can you see in your life a growing desire to follow and know and pursue and love Jesus? Is He continually becoming more and more what you hunger and thirst after, what you love and desire, who you want, who you find your fullest satisfaction and joy in, who you find your greatest source of peace and hope in. Is it the person of Jesus Christ? Is it the man, Jesus Christ? Guys, there are large portions of our city who never step foot in a church and who don't know Jesus, they don't have faith in Jesus. They've never come alive in Jesus. They don't love Jesus. And guys, there are large portions of our city who step foot in churches every single Sunday who do not know Jesus Christ and do not love Jesus Christ and do not desire Jesus Christ. They're hanging on to religion to save them. And it's not enough. It's not enough. And maybe some of you are in that category. And I would call on you as the Bible calls on you to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and believe in Him. Make an investment of your heart in Jesus that changes how you live. Guys, that's only possible. It's only possible. We cannot miss this. Only possible because of the investment Jesus has already made because He loves you. To come and give His life so that you can know Him. So He's thankful for the faith they have in Christ Jesus. He's thankful for the love they have for all the saints. So one of the tests to know if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ is do you love the church? It's ridiculous when people say I love Jesus but not the church. It's like if you walk up to me and say you love me but not my wife. You know, you don't love me and now I don't love you, right? You can't say that kind of stuff. Not buildings, of course, but people. First John 
is a book written so believers could have assurance of their faith. And one of the tests given in the book of 1 John is the, the test of love. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart uh, before him. Now, you will leave here with simply a guilt trip about how you don't love the saints if you only hear, hey, we're supposed to love all the saints and we don't do it, we fail, and that's, that's all I'm going to leave you with. You will have nothing but a guilt trip if all you look at is your failures in loving all the saints, what Paul talks about in Colossians 1. You've got to go beyond your failures. Right? We need to be honest with ourselves. How do we do in this? But go beyond your failures and go to the source of our ability to love all the saints. You've got to look at Jesus. You've got to see Jesus is sufficient to empower us to live out the things he's called us to live out. Um, Paul mentions the source of this love at the end of Colossians 1.8. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit in them, God in them, that allows them to love all the saints. He also says, or, or rather John says this in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we know love not by looking at how other people love other people. Like, you want to know what love is? Look at how that person loves that person. Yeah, well, maybe on a couple days it might be true, but what about when they fail? At what point would you start? <laughs> Like, we know love, not by looking at how people do it imperfectly, imperfectly sometimes, but by but how God does it. God defines love. And He shows His love for us and what He's done for us through Christ Jesus. And so, and so see that your ability to love all the saints that Paul talks about will only flow from you seeing and embracing God's love for you. Your ability to love all the saints will only happen when you embrace and see God's love for you. So see Jesus on the night of his arrest, getting up from the table, walking over, taking off his robe and putting on a towel, grabbing a basin of water and walking to these 12 men that he's known for three years and shared life with every single day and stooping down in one of the most humble, vulnerable positions to take their dirty, muddy, sweat-encrusted, animal waste encrusted, yucky, stinky feet and put them in that basin of water and gently wash the water off of their feet. See him do this for a room of men that in a few hours would completely abandon him. And he knew it. Completely abandon him to be arrested and crucified. That's part of God's plan. It had to happen like that. That's part of his suffering. But him in love, wash. I mean, if it was us, we'd be like, oh, I'm wasting time on that. You know, that's just too much. They're going to do it anyway. What does it matter that I do this act of love? See, Jesus washing the feet of Peter that just in a few short hours would deny three times, swearing he does not know Jesus. And see Jesus washing the feet of Judas, who in just a few short moments in John 13 would get up from the table and go find some guards with soldiers and swords to go hunt Jesus down while he's in the middle of a prayer time with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. See him wash his feet and be vulnerable and loving. And see that it's in the context of that act of love. Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus tells us here that our love for each other, guys, just our love for each other, not our theological acumen and ability, not our ability to articulate the gospel, not how cool we are as a new church plant in town, blah, blah, blah. None of that. Just our love for each other demonstrates and declares to the world who we are. Disciples of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ. 
This is not getting into the loving those outside of the household of faith. This is just loving each other right, right here in the household of faith, the church. You see, one of the barriers to the gospel in our culture is when those outside the church don't see this kind of love from us inside the body of faith, and then they know that we don't really have anything that they need. We don't have really anything that we really believe. We just have words and talk. We don't have deed and action. So if we're gossiping and if we're critical and if we're demeaning and if we're alienating and if we're not fully embracing each other, completely graciously pouring out love on each other, if that's how we treat each other, we don't have anything to offer this city of Monroe. And you hear people say stupid things like, well, I love them, but I don't like them. It's ridiculous. Repent of your lack of love and repent of your ignorance because the love that we're called to share with all the saints is not a love that is measured. Well, I, give them, I give them this much, but I'm not going any further. Did God measure His love for us in Christ Jesus? Did He pour a little bit, but not going... He gave it all to us. He poured it all out on us. And we do the same for each other. Especially the household of faith, Galatians 6 says. We, we pour it all out. We're, we're just unabandoned in our love for each other. We don't measure it in any way. What would it look like for a church like the Crossing Church to love a city filled with diverse people in a way that shows a love for all people? If we can't love each other in the diversity that we already have, just the diversity we already have, How can we be expected to love a city that is even more diverse? If we can't show a unity and love that that, that can can oversee the diversity that already exists among us in age and economic level and educational level and and all those sorts of things that already exist, how can we show a love that will transcend a city as diverse as it is? Think about it. Martin Luther King Day is tomorrow. Martin Luther King day is more than a day off from school and a day off from work. It's a day to celebrate God's grace on our country to raise up a man who was not perfect, but a man that God could use to help fix some of the ridiculous ways that we lived life 50 years ago. How are we going to celebrate that? How are we going to rejoice with that in a city that that has a long way to go in terms of racial tension and division? I mean, we've made progress, but as we've seen in the last few months, our nation has a long way to go. Don't get me wrong, we're never going to get to a day where it's all solved. We're never going to get to a day on on this planet Earth, in the current state that things are, until Jesus comes back, where there will be no racial tensions, there will be no poverty, no lack of education, no disease, sickness, and chaos. We cannot create utopia on Earth until the King returns. But, but... When we live as we are called to live, where there is a love for all the saints, a love for all people, regardless of differences, then we are giving this world a taste of what's to come. There's not going to be racial diverse, a racial, uh, lack of racial harmony around the throne of Jesus Christ. We're going to be completely blended and completely united in worshiping our King. And so when we do that now, We give this world a taste. This is where we're going. This is what it's going to look like. Yeah, we're different. And we celebrate the differences. But even more than our differences, we're one. We're one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And and we can do that as the Crossing Church. We've talked in our missional communities about, as a missional community, going to see the movie Selma together or doing some other things to to be a part of the diverse culture of our city. And, and I pray that God leads you as you do those sorts of things. Love is so central to the reality of the gospel. We could spend multiple weeks on this, but, but know this. When and how we struggle with this, and, and look, we all do. Don't sit there and pat yourself on the back like you got this figured out. We all struggle to love all the saints. There are, there are people that you can pop in your head like, man, it's hard to love that person. All right, and, and if you can't think of anybody, then you're that person, right? So what, whoever it is you struggle with, we all struggle to love people, 
The struggle is not with the people we're trying to love. Like if they could just change, if they weren't so aggravating, if they weren't so awkward, if they weren't so mean, if they weren't so distant, if they weren't so this, that, and the other, then I could really love them. That's not the struggle. The struggle to love is in our inability to fully embrace and see the love that God has poured out on us in Christ Jesus. That's the struggle. We think we have to manufacture this love, and it's hard to love because they're so different. Well, the difference between you and the people you struggle to love is nothing compared to the difference between us sinful people and a holy God. And yet God, in Christ, bridged that gap and came and poured out His love on us. Willingly, lovingly, to save and forgive and adopt us into His family forever because He wanted us, because He wanted you. And guess what? He not only wanted you, he wanted that person. They are your brother in Christ. They are your sister in Christ. You're going to be with them forever. Start loving them now because Christ has loved you. Guys, there's hardly a greater sign of the reality of the gospel in the church than when we are generous and overwhelming in our love for each other. There's hardly a greater sign of evidence that this is real. If God would produce that in us more and more and more, we would be irresistible to a city that is longing to be loved. Lastly, he thanks God for the hope that he sees in them. In verse 5, he says, uh, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. For most people, including us, we tie our hopes to temporary circumstantial events. And so we hope for a good day or a week, because if we have a, a good day or a good week, then, then things are well. So, so what has to happen for you to have a good day or a good week? Well, we, we're successful in our job. We get a lot done. Or we're, the weather is nice and it makes us happy. Or we're disciplined to eat right and exercise. We're funny and people laugh at our wit and our sarcasm. And if those things happen, we're filled with joy and life and peace, because those things happening, circumstantial things, are the foundation of our hope. That's where we place our hope. Like these things have to happen and then I'll have joy and I'll have happiness and peace if these things happen. Or we place our hope in other circumstances that need to change. So if only I could make this much money. If only my kids could get a little bit older and not be so consuming. If only we could buy this house or live in this neighborhood. If only I could get this grade in school. If only I could date this person. If only I could drive this kind of car. If only, if only, if only. If only bad things wouldn't happen to me or my kids or my family. If only, if only, if only. If only my kids would be safe and not get sick. If only this good thing would happen. If only this bad thing wouldn't happen. So, so what is it for you? What is it for you? Where are you placing your hope? What is the if only that has your joy, your heart, your desires wrapped up into it. I want you to think about it in your mind right now. Like that thing that you were tempted to place your joy, your hope, and your heart in. Now imagine that it happens. It happens. You get it. You get the job. You make that amount of money. She says yes when you ask her out. He says yes when you ask him out. Well, maybe that shouldn't happen. Um, the kids are safe, you're successful in school, you get good, whatever it is, you're driving that car, you live in a house, it happens, imagine that it happens, man, that's awesome, you're so excited, that's wonderful, yes, I've been wanting that to happen, I'm so filled with joy. Now imagine, it never happens, ever, you, you never get the job that you love. You never make the amount of money you think you need to make. Your, your kids don't follow Jesus like you want them to follow Jesus. That relationship is never reconciled. Be, you never get married. You never have kids. Imagine it never happens. Are you crushed? Are you crushed? Do you see why circumstantial temporary things cannot bear the weight of our hopes? Everything and everyone will always let us down. They cannot bear the weight of our hopes. Only Jesus Christ can bear the weight of our hopes. He alone is the only one who will never let us down, who will never turn his back on us, who will never abandon us, who will never rust, uh, decay, go out of 
of, of commission, who will never burn in a fire, who will never turn his back on you or fail you like everything and everyone else will. Jesus will not fail you. Everything and everyone else does. They die. They quit working. It goes away like the wind. Only Jesus is able to bear the weight of our hopes. And the, here's what's awesome about Jesus. Not only is Jesus as good as you think he is, but the more you hope in him and you place all the weight of your hopes on him, the better he gets. The better he gets. Like it just keeps getting better and better and better. Talk to saints who have walked with Jesus for a long time. And, and they're not going to say, well, you know, he's just kind of, eh. He was great at the beginning, but now he's kind of, eh. They don't know him. They don't know him. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven, and that hope is Jesus Christ. It's a person. Our hope is a person. Because we have Jesus, we can abandon ourselves from placing hope on anything and anyone else that will let us down the rest of our life. We can abandon our lives to do whatever He calls us to do because we have Jesus. He is enough. That's all we need. And that's how we live. Faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, hope laid up in heaven, all products of the gospel. Let me just read one more time, verse 5. Through seven, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Some think gospel fruit is optional. So as long as you've jumped through the right religious hoop and made a decision for Jesus then it doesn't really matter what you do with the rest of your life. I've got heaven squared away. I don't really have to bear fruit. If that's how these people in Colossae live, then Paul's not writing to them. He's not saying this. Like Paul would not write, hey, I'm thankful for the faith you had in Christ Jesus on this day, and I know you've been really mediocre since then, but that's okay because on one day you got it right. Like that letter's not getting written. He not only says that they have faith in Christ Jesus, but go back up to verse 2, he says they are faithful. They continue. Something that gospel fruit is only external. So as long as I hang around the right crowd, go to church services, dress like a certain way, act a certain way, then that's all that matters. Again, that's not who Paul's describing, a bunch of fake religious people. External appearance of obedience without inward heart change is the definition of a hypocrite. Go read the Gospels to see how Jesus dealt with hypocrites. Matthew 23. As we have heard... As the gospel has come to us, as we have believed, as we have seen it lived out, then more and more we become this people, full of faith, full of love, full of hope. And that's not only true today, but it will only increase and grow in us and through us to reach others. As Paul points out, this gospel is increasing, it's bearing fruit, it's growing. This is intended to take our mind back to creation, where we were told as the image bearers of God to go into all the nations, go into all the earth, and bear fruit and multiply as the image bearers of God. This is ultimately, that was cursed because of sin. This is ultimately fulfilled through the gospel that we, that are recreated in the image of God, recreated in Christ as new creations. We now go to all the nations, like the Philippines, bearing the image of God to all peoples that they would see the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and come alive in Him. And we have 2,000 years since then, to see how this has happened. I mean, Acts chapter 1, there's 120 people. In 30 years, it goes from Jerusalem to the center of the known world, the city of Rome. In 300 years, it becomes the state religion of the, the largest empire on the face of the earth, Rome. Then it was corrupted, but even while it was corrupted, there were remnants of true followers of Jesus Christ so that the church, the true church, did not die out. And here we are today. And even though we're in a gospel-hardened area where it doesn't seem like the gospel makes much impact, Know that in other parts of the world, the gospel is exploding, exploding, spreading from person to person like a wildfire, seeing charts change and people come alive in Christ and families healed and reconciled and, and so forth and so on. And so we're praying and we're longing for the gospel to explode in our city. And those who don't know Jesus, as those who don't know Jesus come to know him for the first time in our city, as religious people have the Holy Spirit speak to them and reveal to them, you're only religious, you're a hypocrite. And they come alive by faith in Jesus Christ. As 
Christians, genuine believers who are sleeping, wake up to the reality of the gospel and what God has genuinely created them for. Then we see a gospel renewal in the city of Monroe. And the gospel continues to bear fruit and increase. So maybe this morning that's happened for you genuinely the first time. Like you're sitting here and the Holy Spirit has spoken to you that you don't really know Christ. You're just religious. This morning the Holy Spirit is calling on you to repent of your sins and call out to Jesus Christ for salvation. Like you need to tell somebody before you leave. You can do that as we, as we continue to worship through, through the table, through um, giving and singing. You can, you can do that. But you need to tell somebody before you leave so we can celebrate with you, so we can equip you as a disciple of Jesus Christ to go make more disciples. And so I encourage you to do that. But for all of us, we need to repent of our sins and believe again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like that never stops. We do it every day, all day. We repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ. If you're you, that's the first time, then let somebody know. But, it, but for all of us, I call on you to walk in repentance, to walk in faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, if you're walking in repentance today, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then I invite you to share in this meal with us that goes back 2,000 years, that, that shows us who Christ is, what Christ has done. His body was given for us. It was broken for us, a sinless life. He lived the life that we fail at. He shed his blood on the cross willingly. They didn't kill him. He allowed himself to be crucified. And he shed his blood for the remission of our sins so that we could be forgiven and God's wrath could be satisfied. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so we don't have to through faith in him. And so I invite you to share in that meal with us in a few minutes. Let me pray and then we'll continue to worship. Father, we're so thankful for your grace and mercy. So thankful for Jesus Christ. It's encouraging to see uh, even a a church 2,000 years ago in Colossae living it out and it being real and vibrant. And Father, they in many ways are an example to us as who we long to be, a people marked by genuine faith in Jesus, genuine love for all the saints, and genuine hope in Jesus alone. And it's all because of the gospel. So help us to see this morning that it's nothing we can do, it's something Christ has done that we believe in. As we share in this meal together, it shows us who Christ is and what Christ has done. It also binds us together as a people. Father, this this person, Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood, the, the remission of our sins, the life we have in Christ, this binds us together more than anything else. And so help us to see that and celebrate that today as we continue to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few moments, uh, Scott's going to play.